Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 38, with the title, Secrets from the Habitologist. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Tony Winyard. Tony describes himself as someone who helps people create habits to become automatic. When I asked Tony to describe his superpower, he said it is the ability to assimilate pretty quickly to most places that he goes. Hello, Tony. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. and It's great to be here. So thank you for inviting me. No, it's absolutely a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a long time, reading some of the uh, the show notes you've put together beforehand. That you've had a pretty interesting life, and I love. can't wait to find out more. So, Tony, when we talked earlier, we talked about uh, you have a nickname of, of the habitologist. And so what are the secrets of a habitologist? <laughs> so the reason how that came about was I interviewed someone on my podcast uh, a few months ago, and they... I'm trying to remember what their title was, but their title was Somethingologist. It was about something that they did, and it's, it's, it's gone from my mind. But it stuck me, and I thought that was quite unique. And at the time, I was training to become a tiny habits coach. And, and I just played around with the habitologist, and I looked around on Google and see if many, anyone was using it. And it, originally, it was just for a bit of fun. And a couple of people said they quite liked it. So I, I don't use it often, but I do use it sometimes. I mean, when I talk um, in the DNI space around bringing change, uh, a lot of it is around nudges, which I guess are tiny habits, small micro changes around process, around beliefs, about framing that can have a huge impact. So is that what you do in terms of creating these new habits? Yeah. Well, yeah, it very much is. And and how it all came about really was I've been for a few years now, I've been immersing myself in studying in various areas of health. So nutrition and sleep and movement and breathing and, and so on. And I, I found I had a very good knowledge about all of this. And I was able to give people lots of knowledge, but that wasn't really necessarily helping them implement the things I was talking about into their everyday of life. And actually maybe eating better or sleeping better or whatever the case was. And when I discovered this book, Tiny Habits, that was kind of like the missing piece of the puzzle because then I was able to help people make it into a habit to sleep better or into a habit to eat better or whatever the case was. We we keep looking for these massive changes in in our lives sometimes, don't we? And it becomes unrealistic, unsustainable, unfulfillable. We want to lose all this weight, we want to become fitter. So we always embark on these big ticket programs, which don't hit the mark, do they? So tiny habits, a way of achieving a goal without investing your life into it. It's just incremental. Yeah. And it has to start small because if you try to start, so if you want to run a marathon, you don't start running 20 miles every day. It's just, <laughs> you're probably going to fail. But if you start by running just around the block, and then you slowly build up and you, you know, and you scale up over time, you're more likely to succeed. And, and that's the same for anything, really. We, it's, if we can start very small, and it could even be just as small as, well, I'm going to start running, but I'm not, maybe I'm not really so keen on running. You just put your shoes out in front of the door, your, your running shoes in front of the door. And maybe for the first couple of days, you don't even run, but you just see the shoes there and it puts it in your mind. And then you build up from there. But yeah, if you start off tiny, you're more likely to succeed in whatever behavior you're trying to automate. That's interesting. I, I, I'm, most people would probably describe me as unfit and I, I wouldn't disagree with them. I need to do something about my activity. And uh, we moved house recently into the countryside and I decided that my, my new habit was going to be go for a cycle ride. So I bought a bicycle and it, I, I had an over 
ambitious expectation of my own physical ability. I thought, oh, I can jump on a bike. It can't be that difficult. I've, I used to ride a bike every day to school and in my, I've been to centre parks like you do. And I suddenly realised that I'm now 56, very overweight, and that I'm not as fit as I thought I was. And uh, my first five miles, I think I felt like I needed oxygen when I got home again. I did it. I made it. I cracked it. I went to the place and came back again. But I've now, I'm going to readjust my expectations and I'm going to do probably a quarter mile for a week and then, then a half a mile. Then I've got, I know where the next lamppost is and I'm just going to aim by the lamppost or aim by the trees and then try and build it up. So you're, you're quite right. And I think if I keep holding on to this, I must achieve this massive goal. I'll, I'll, I'll never do it. But I think just something realistic. 10 minutes is, is not, a, it's not a defeatist. It's a realism. And I think you're quite right. Well, and another element of what you just said, because by, when it sounded from what you were saying, when you did that five miles, it, it wasn't fun. And if it's not fun, you're unlikely to repeat it again. But if you make it very short, you're more likely to enjoy it. And that's a massive part of making something automate, you know, automate. You have to enjoy it. Yeah. My, 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 my goal, and this is, this is my vision, is to get up on a Sunday morning, cycle to the farm shop, pick up some eggs and bacon, cycle home and cook it. So my test cycle was to the farm shop and back. But when I got back, I was in no fit state to cook anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's the bit I've got to work on. It's better get there and back and enjoy it and be able to talk when I get home and be able to enjoy cooking the food when I bought it. So, yeah, I know I can do it now. I know it's within my reach. I just now need to improve that and, uh, and go on for more regular cycles. But, yeah, so it's really interesting about this habits thing, and I think, I've already sussed out I need to develop the habit mm. of looking out the window and going, now I can do 10 minutes. Rather than thinking, but before, I was thinking, oh, I need to wait. I need to find an hour or two to do this. Mm. I don't. I just need to think, okay, think in 10-minute chunks. I can go down to the end of the road and back again. Yeah. That's still a win, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's a much bigger win. It's, yeah, <laughs> consistency, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've had a, you've had a pretty fantastic life from what i can read from what you sent me you've lived in 11 countries yeah and you did some radio presenting as well in your past that and that sounds really intriguing tell me tell me about that um yeah I, i've worked on radio in a few different countries um and in one of the countries i was in indonesia for a few years and i i was at the time i was working as a dj in a nightclub in indonesia and the the Kind of equivalent of Capital Radio. I'm, I'm from London, so Capital Radio is my you know, how, how I, the landmark I would use. And the equivalent of Capital Radio in Jakarta was a station called Tulajaya, and they asked me and the, the the local DJ I worked with to come into their station to interview on their breakfast show. And I'd already worked on radio in some other countries previously, and at the end of the interview, I just I made a couple of comments about the station and some improvements I thought that they might be interested in that would make this show run smoother and, and some other things. I can't even remember what it was I suggested. But they turned around to me and said, well, why don't you have your own show? And I was like, yeah, okay. And and then I, so I started doing a weekly show and they gave me complete carte blanche as to whatever music I wanted to play because I had a pretty good music knowledge and collection. But the more interesting thing happened was I was the only native English speaker on the station. And Jakarta is a city of eight, nine million people. And it's quite a, a lot of major artists perform in Jakarta on their Asian leg of their tour. And like major, major artists. And so a lot, they were often getting interview slots for some of these people. And they started to ask me, would I interview the people? Not because I was any thing special as an interviewer but because i spoke english as in my native language and so i got to interview john bon jovi and cindy crawford and stephen cigar and ub yeah, all sorts of very famous people as i said not because i was anything special but because i was a native english speaker that's fascinating i mean that must have been kind of i guess when that started you must have had that the, the nerves for sort of like shaky hand, wobbly voice, were you in awe or did you overcome that pretty quick? I, no, I'm, I wasn't, um, no, I wasn't in awe. I, 
for some reason, I've never had that. I don't get that kind of um, starstruck thing. But what I where I did go wrong, um, and it's actually it's interesting interesting to something that we were talking about before we started recording. You you talked about your style that you like to do the show, the kind of conversational style, and at the start of these interviews. I was doing a ton of research on every person I was interviewing. I had all these, all this information about them, things they did and when they'd released records and films and whatever it was. And I was just asked, going through a series of questions in these, the first few of the um, interviews that I did. And it took me a while to realize that there was no flow. It was just a series of questions. And, and then I can't remember who it was, but for one interview, I thought, what I'm been doing hasn't really been working. Maybe I just need to have a conversation and be confident enough to not have any information on the person and just simply to have a conversation and see how that goes. And it went so much better. And I never knew where the episode was going to go, where the conversation was going to go. And the the interviews were a hundred times better. And I've just always done interviews that way ever since. And that was in, in the mid nineties, something like that. I mean, I often sort of beat myself up because I feel like I'm winging it. But sometimes winging it is actually more natural, more authentic, more interesting. When, when I don't know where the conversation's going, you don't know where the conversation's going, and therefore the listener is following on that. As you say, if I if I was too prescriptive here and I've got your bio out and I ask you all this stuff, it's going to sound quite, I don't know, quite almost like fake or or prepared. Well, I've done, I don't know about you, I've been on some podcasts where, I have just been, the, the, the host has just had a series of questions. I, I remember one was, it was literally just question after question and there wasn't any connection between the questions and it was so stunted. There wasn't any flow to it at all. Yeah, I do a lot of panel shows uh, for corporate events. So they either want me to present or I often try and encourage them to interview me live and get the Q&A going for the audience. And they always want me to give them a whole load of questions or give them all the all the things. I said, well, look, can't we just make it up as we go? But I suppose that requires a confidence mm. in the host, doesn't it? And I suppose I, I've got to be careful here that I'm not imprinting my confidence into somebody else who may not have it. So, yeah, it, it's, it's nice to have a few prepared questions, I guess, but it's nice to go off piece quite quickly. <laughs> mm. Well, and, and actually I, I had a couple of comments from some of these, like, megastars who and they were being interviewed all day long by various radio stations tv stations newspapers and so on and a couple of times these conversations as i said just went off on a real tangent and mm. a couple of times the start the end of the interview would say well wow, i really enjoyed that because we covered some ground i haven't covered in any every other interview has just been question after question but we discussed some stuff today that i haven't brought up in any of the interviews and so that mm reinforce my confidence to continue doing that yeah brilliant uh, it's, so you worked in 11 countries around the world you did a lot of djing you met a load of celebrities became a kind of like a an a-list hanger outer <laughs> <laughs> and what well, you came back to the uk after that after a few years did you yeah i i mean it sounds very glamorous and in some ways it was i mean i was you know i worked in all those different countries and i was being usually the I was working the best club in each of the cities that I was working in. And so the club was usually four and it was, people wanted to know the DJ and I was, it was good. And it, but eventually I got tired of it. I got tired of virtually living out of a suitcase and going to a country where I didn't know anybody. I'd make lots of good friends. And then there was always this scene at the airport where I've got all these people saying goodbye to me. And I know I'm probably never going to see most of them again. And then I go to another country and I start this whole thing afresh. And after a while, it was a combination of I got tired of that after a while, but also I'd been away from England for 12 years. I thought, yeah, maybe for the first 10 years, I didn't miss England at all. Whenever anyone said to me, are you going to go back to London? My reaction was normally, why would I want to go back there? But then eventually I started to miss things. And plus at the same time, my mum started to lose her eyesight. And I thought, okay, now's a good time to go home. So yeah, after 12 years, I, I returned. The DJing or, or something else? Well, and yeah, I, I also got fed up of club DJing. So I didn't want to continue 
working as a DJ, but I didn't, I wasn't really qualified to do anything else. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my best friend who I'd known since we were like, we're the same age and we're 14 days apart in our birthdays and we went to the same school and everything and our parents know each other. And he's, he was working as a financial advisor and he had, he had way too many clients. And he said, I tell him, why don't you come and work with me? I can't handle all these clients I've got and I can, we can get you trained as a financial advisor. And so I, I did that. I went through all the training and it was such a big mistake because I am just not cut out to do something like that. I, I had a ball in having the conversations with these clients because I really enjoyed talking with people. But when I was trying to sell them a pension or life insurance, I, I just didn't, I, I made no money at it because I didn't have any belief in what I was doing. And, um, but then what happened, I ended up, people were offering me DJ work, but this time as a wedding DJ, which is very different to a club DJ. And so I ended up doing that just to make some money because I wasn't making any money in, in trying to sell financial services. And so I ended up working as a, as a wedding DJ. Wow. That's a big difference. So your what is it, transit van, a load of, load of amps and speakers and lights on, on the, on the road, kicking it, were you? Yeah. And it started off, I, because I'd been away for so long, I didn't really have a reputation, you know, and, and as I said, a wedding DJ, the typical person, a couple who was going to book you for a wedding, they would never have heard of me as a club DJ, especially as I'd been away for so long. So my reputation didn't count for anything as far as weddings were concerned. And so I started off almost at the bottom of the rung, earning really poor money and not particularly being respected. I mean, it wasn't a great experience at the beginning. But I found that as a professional speaker, you do your first your first gigs. Now, I always think about when I watched the, uh, the Freddie Mercury film, and the history of Queen, literally all these mega bands, all these world-famous rock stars all started off lugging their kit in the back of a transit in a, in a dirty, dingy, smelly pub somewhere and then moving on to the next venue the next night. And, and I think as performers, whether you're a comedian, whether you're a DJ, whether you're a speaker, whatever you are, you've got to break that, that ground. You've got to, you've got to kind of do those backstreet venues. Mm. Cause it, it's a good test of your metal as well as it, it makes you confidence. You're used to the heckling. You're used to the customer service dealing with situations. I think if you just go straight onto stage and get it big, you don't have that same depth to your personality, do you? No. And I, and I had done all of that kind of mobile DJing initially before I became a club DJ, I'd started off when I was 15, 16, 17, doing that kind of thing. And my goal then was to be a club DJ and I was doing everything I could to get in clubs, which was very different to working in pubs. And and, and so I managed to, to get into the club scene, which was a, a story in itself. But then when I found myself back into that scene and I'm now, it's 20 years later and I'm a very different person. Um, but it, yeah, it slowly it improved. And I, I think that the, where there was one event where I had this kind of epiphany almost where I was doing a wedding and there, it was in a venue in Old Street in central London and the venue owner came up to me and he was this really tall guy and he, he sort of looked down at me and he said, how much do you charge, mate? And I said, um, 150 pounds. He said, well, I have DJs charging double. What were you charging 150 pounds for? And he, he said this line that I'll never forget. He said, you're selling a Ferrari for the price of a four Cortina, mate. And he said, you want to up your prices? And so the next day I was thinking, why am I charging 150? And I realized I was charging that because that's what everyone was charging. And so I didn't really think about what I should be charging. I just thought, well, that's what I have to charge because everyone else is charging that. I literally doubled my price. And the next time I went to meet someone about doing their wedding, I thought there's no way they're going to book me you know, when, it, when I say 300. And I soon found that everyone was still booking me. It didn't make any difference to my booking rate. And then everything changed inside my head because then I realized, oh, I've got control over my prices. And before that, I hadn't given it any thought. Yeah, it's I, – I, when you're pricing things, you can either work a lot for a little – or you can work a little for a lot and it's mm. just changing the ratio somewhere, but having that self-belief, that value proposition, understanding your worth and then finding the clients that value your worth. And as you say, Absolutely. you'd rather, you'd rather do five nights at one at, at, at 300 than 10 nights at one fifty. 
it just makes more sense, doesn't it? Mm. And often yeah. you find that you do the same amount of work, but earn more more money for that work, or you you earn the same money but do half the work or a quarter of the work, and that's the ratio, and that, that's the confidence as you build your business, isn't it? Well, and yeah, and once I had that realization that I had a lot more control, I went. I mean, it just I changed from three hundred. In and by that was around the early 2000s, and by the early uh, teens, you know, 2012, 13, I was charging probably about eight times that. I was in around 2,000 pounds for a wedding. Um, but then I was offering far more because I I trained myself in many different areas. I trained myself in to be a master of ceremonies. I'd done a lot of public speaking training. I'd and and I'd done other things that had no connection with DJ, like comedy and improvisation and emotional intelligence and all these other areas, which helped me to reach a different type of client. Yeah, the value add. No, you weren't just, and nothing wrong with being just a DJ, but you you were adding more value, which is what the clients perceived. And, and as you say, mm. you were finding different opportunities than you would have before. And yeah. I suppose your reputation traveled further. Once you're in that different market, you don't compete. Yeah. You set you set the standard, don't you, at that point? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it didn't so you mentioned emotional intelligence. Won. You mentioned you mentioned emotional intelligence. Um, and you said you trained in it. So I'm a I'm a great believer in when we when I talk about DNI and inclusion around uh, one of the one of the biggest anxieties people have is the fear of getting it wrong. How do I have a conversation with someone who has a disability? How do I have a conversation with black when I'm white? How do I, how do I engage with people mm. who are different to me? And I always come back to this, the emotional intelligence. It's about knowing how to have a conversation with anybody. Therefore, everybody is accessible to you. And it's the basic skills around reading people, mm. the, the open questions, being able to pick up on empathy, compassion, re how how people are reacting to you. It's all of that kind of stuff built in, isn't it? So where has it taken you in that in that sort of experience? Oh, the emotional intelligence made quite a big difference because it helped me see things in a very different way. It helped me. It, it wasn't actually just in my – at the time I would just – dived into studying and reading a lot on all sorts of different subjects. And I'm, I remember around that same period, as I was learning more about emotional intelligence and how to use it and how that would help me with the people I was speaking with and trying to find new clients and whatever the case might be. But I also at the same time learned not to see myself as a victim. It, so that wasn't so much emotional intelligence. That was some of the psychology stuff I was working and at that, up until then, I think I sometimes did see myself as a victim and it wasn't helping me in any way. So it was a combination of those two things really, really changed my my thinking. And um, I think I've enjoyed life a lot more since then. I'd be asking, why did you feel a victim? What, what led you to feel that? Well, I was going through a difficult separation with my ex and I had to take her to court a few times to see my daughter because she wasn't letting me see my daughter. And so I was, and there were some kind of horrible things that went on, but instead of, um, yeah, I was playing the victim too, too much in that whole situation. And rather than taking responsibility where I, I was at fault as well. She was definitely at fault for some things, but there were things where I was down to fault. I was at fault and I wasn't taking responsibility for that. Yeah. It, I, someone taught me or made me aware of the fact that you have to be accountable for your own actions, hmm. your own footprint, your own impact on the world. And once you can understand who you are and how people perceive you, that self-awareness, that makes you a, a better person in the world because you, you, you have that self-awareness and, and you, and you're, you don't want to be a negative impact on, on anybody else because of that. And it's waking mm. up and, and appreciating that is a real awakening. I found. Hmm. I think also um, to touch back on earlier, you know, I mentioned about when I was working in all those different countries, 
something that I learned when I was doing that whole kind of, you know, it was, I was in working around Europe and the Middle East and the Far East and which were all very different environments and very different culturally. And, and I learned for a start, initially I had to speak very differently because when I first left London, I had quite a strong London accent. And I realized that people couldn't understand me. I was talking too fast. I was using slang. And so I taught myself to speak much slower, to you know get rid of the slang. And and then each of the countries I was in were, were I mean, from some countries that are very rich, like Japan and Switzerland, to some countries that are extremely poor, like Indonesia and Syria. And so there were some very extremes. And I taught myself to how to, I learned quickly how to adapt to very different situations you know, and the way that I would, the people I was meeting and the way they were responding to me was very different. So that taught me a lot, I think, about emotional intelligence in some ways as well. That's interesting you mentioned that. I, I, I travel quite extensively in my early 30s. Uh, I was to work for an international private bank, which had offices in, in many countries. Um, Mainly the higher end of the of the food chain, sort of the more affluent market. Um, and I also also a member of a club, which I culminated to being the national president at one point. And that was an international club. And I used to go on lots of international trips, staying in people's houses in various countries, and then living with 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 the culture. And I, I learned this was probably back in the mid to late nineties. I started this where. The level of English spoken by people who lived in other parts of Europe or other parts of the world wasn't as advanced as it is today. People were learning English, but not fluently. Mm. And so I, I learned pretty quickly that you had to speak with a rhythm, with a certain pace, be very conscious about the words that you would use in your language. And I wouldn't say being patronizing, but being very deliberate about what you were trying to say in a way that was clear. And mm. not as you, you know, drift into yeah. localisms or um, slang or, 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 or rolling your words together. So I got very used to talking this very understandable way. And people used to say to me, mm. you're so easy to talk to. You're so easy to understand. And, and I've always held that belief mm. that make yourself easy to understand. If you want to be heard and truly mm. listened to, take responsibility to make sure you communicate in a way that people do listen to you. And I, I still hold that true mm. today. And I still find that people give me feedback and say, I speak in a very clear, very evenly paced, interesting way, great radio voice. And I think, okay, I don't know where that came from. But obviously, over my lifetime, spending my time in different cultures with people of different languages, you get used to communicating in a way that mm. is less complex, maybe, or unne without unnecessary complexity. Mm. And I wonder also if you've, well, something that I've, it's only recently that I realized this because I, I guess it, I just took it for granted from, for many years. In the last year, last couple of years, there's been a couple of situations where, um, some people, uh, well, I can think of one example in particular where a friend of mine who's doing these online courses, he's creating these courses, which have been sold to people in many different countries. And, and he hasn't really traveled that much. And he was asking me for feedback on some of the copy he was using and some of the things he was saying in the sales videos. And I said to him, well, these are going to, to, to Canada. You told me that you've got clients in Canada and Mexico and some places in South America, and are, they're not going to understand some of these words you're using. And he hadn't even crossed his mind because they were just words that he used every day. But I knew from being in all those different countries that there were many words that we use on a just without even thinking that people in some other countries, although they've learned English, they just don't understand some of the idioms and phrases that we use. Mm. And we forget we pick a lot of our common language up from television, from TV, the metaphors, similes, and you say the idioms we use tend to be very contextual, which don't mm. translate. And mm. we've got to be really, really careful that we're not misinterpreted it's something we, we we think we've said that's clear. And, they, and I've had people say to me, what do you mean by that? And I go, oh, you're right. There's no context there, is there? There's no, mm. there's no, there's no background to that, that phrase that came out of a, a 70s TV program. 
<laughs> so mm. yeah, it's it's been really really sanitizing your language to make it understand understandable. But you're trying to do that on the fly without sounding patronizing, mm. without sounding um, like you're treating somebody as the, as the the stupid or an idiot, which can come across if you if you try too hard. But being very natural and flowing mm. uh, and being very well paced. And I think the speed of talking is very important as well. Mm. Allowing pauses, allowing reflection time, yeah. gaps between words. Again, it, it not just helps people who where English isn't the first language, but also someone who lip reads, someone who is is looking for that that clue for maybe their hard of hearing, whatever that may be. It's allowing time to process as well, isn't it? Rather than just rush people into the next point. Hmm. Yeah, and also what you just said there reminded me of a story about the pause is so important in so many different areas of life. I mean, it's certainly in the situations you were talking about, but it also, by having that pause and slowing the pace down, it allows people to, whose, nat, whose native language may be not English, they've got time to think about what it was you're saying and understand what you're saying. But the story that it really reminded me of, I was doing, I did I dabbled in some stand-up comedy a few years ago and I had this little some sketch that I'd written or a series of sketches and I was trying my hand in different comedy clubs and I wasn't trying to be a comedian. I was just trying to see if I could, I wanted to make people laugh because of the speaking I was doing and I wanted to be able to inject more humor into my speaking. So I thought, well, this is the true test. If I can make people laugh in a comedy club. Anyway, I had all this, my my uh, whole approach was mostly story-led. I didn't really do sort of um, gags or, or such. But because I hadn't done this before, I wasn't supremely confident that I was a very good comedian. And for the first couple of gigs I did, I just sort of told a story, bang, straight into another story, straight. And I didn't really leave any time for people to, to get some of the stories that I was, I was saying. And so I wasn't getting many laughs. At the fourth gig, I don't know why, but I felt more confident for some reason. It was a maybe it was a nicer atmosphere or something. There was more people, and there was one particular story I had, which was a real wordplay. And at the end of this story, with the kind of wordplay, I I paused, and the reaction I got it was only a slight, a small pause, and I was about to go on to the next story, and I literally had people standing up and, and cheering and giving almost like a standing ovation. Mm. Wow, what a difference just by pausing for a couple of seconds before moving into the next story. That, that taught me a yeah. huge, huge amount. I've done a couple of stand-ups. I say a couple. I've done one routine. I did it four or five times. And I learned very quickly, you have to let the audience laugh. You have to create space for the audience to find something funny. otherwise. As you say, without the pause, there's no opportunity for someone to, to for the joke to land, is there? You have to create that space. Uh, I'm, obviously, lockdown's kicked in, and I haven't furthered stand up, but I, I'm not. I'm not sure I enjoyed it. It's a bit, a bit like the, you know, we were talking at the beginning about these small habits. Um, I volunteered to do it because it, it was way outside of my comfort zone. It was like this big thing that I was scared of. I thought, well, if I'm scared of it, I've got to do it. And as a professional speaker, I'm used to get up on stage. So it wasn't, it wasn't the fear of the stage. It was just, I don't know. It was just, there was a fear there that I wasn't happy with. And I'm a member of the professional speaking association. And each year at the conference, there's a, a five minute comedy slot where any, any member can stand up and, and sort of book a slot and you get five minutes. So I remember sort of the convention beforehand saying to the person who was organizing it, I'd like a comedy slot next year. And they said to me, you're in. You're the first. Tick. Got it. I thought, oh, it's a year away. Mm, no problem at all. About 48 hours before the night, I thought, I need to do something. I need, I need to have a routine. And I'm sure other people have rehearsed and practiced, but that's not my style. I tend to be a kind of a it, well, it comes into my head, it pops into my mouth, and it goes out. And I had a whole load of routine. I had I had four or five stories, which were actually life anecdotes that I knew individually they were funny. I knew individually I knew them, so I had a routine. I pieced them together in a in a in a, in a path and a storyline that worked with a big punchline at the end, you know, the closing punchline, the, the big laugh, and. 
I delivered it to this, this stage and uh, I didn't win the prize that night. I was beaten by a, a semi-pro after dinner speaker who was was doing this routine night in, night out. So I didn't feel too bad about it, but I felt I held my own against the other competitors. And then I was traveling to Australia to speak at a conference over there in Melbourne. And another person, a friend of mine who was also traveling to the same conference to speak, mentioned the fact they were going to do their stand-up routine at a comedy club in Melbourne, downtown Melbourne one night. And I just emailed back and said, any chance you could give me the details? Because I'll book a slot at the comedy night. So, so however many thousand miles from home on a Tuesday night in this comedy club in Melbourne, I stand up and give my routine again. And, uh, yeah, the feedback I got from the, the MC Booker organizer was I, I raced it. I think I, my nerves kicked in it, I, outside my comfort zone. And I probably raced it too much. And also because they give you a finite time, it's got to be five minutes. You're really conscious about the clock. And I was trying to squeeze it in, squeeze it in, squeeze it in. I think that was a mistake I made. The next time what I'll do is I'll, I need to pace it and have less content and make more of it. And I think that's the mistake. He's trying to, and I think as a speaker, it's the same. You try and put too much in and you end up overloading people. So sometimes less is obviously more. And I think with comedy, four or five well-honed stories that land are better than seven or eight squeezed. And I, I learned that. And I, I delivered it a couple more times since. Once at a networking night uh, in London and once a, at a, a women's, uh, international women's day event, I delivered it as well. And yeah, I, as I say, I'm not sure if I want to do it again, but uh, I've done it. I've done it a few times, and uh, certainly, uh, yeah, learned. I learned a lot about myself, and and yeah, and I can be funny. This <laughs> is probably the most important thing. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm a great admirer yeah, of anyone who does, does a bit of stand up. Using humor is so it's the best way to connect with people, isn't it? So that's why, um, yeah, it's, I, I have enormous admiration for some of the you know, comedians on the scene who are constantly every year, they're rewriting their whole set and they'd go into Edinburgh each year. They deliver, they, they practice it all year in the lead up to Edinburgh. They deliver it there and then they begin again almost and they rewrite a whole new set. And then by next, Edinburgh the following year, they've got a completely new set. That's just an amazing ability to be able to do that. Yeah, I used to go and see acts at the uh, the Guildhall in Portsmouth near where I live. And I've seen John Bishop. I've seen um, uh, Mumford. Is it Steve, Simon Mumford? Stephen Mumford? Jason Mumford. Jason Mumford, yeah. Is it Jason Mumford? Yeah, John Bishop, um, Alan Davis. Uh, I saw the uh, "Would I Lie to You" crowd. Um, they did like a little little routine. So I see, yeah, I see I seen quite a few. Jimmy Carr, and it's they they create that show for the year for that tour, don't they? And they, they all the gags. And one thing I loved about John Bishop was the way he set up a whole load of stories all the way through. And at the end, he had a slideshow that actually showed the stories. And actually, as they happened, he had this big gag about, I think it was about a llama. And there was him and the llama at the end. And it was kind of the way he landed that final close. He signposted all the way through, then just slam dunked at the end. I, I was a great admiration for the the way he, he created that journey. And uh, I, I think you can learn a lot from comedians about how the storytelling, how they craft their, their, their speeches and talks and that humor. And yeah, I'm a great analyzer of stagecraft and how people speak. Yeah, no, I agree completely. There's a lot to be learned from professional, actually, not even just professional comedians, because when I was doing that, I, I did 20 gigs around London. And a lot of the people that, a lot of the places I was working in, we were comedians who were starting from the very beginning. But I got to know a lot of these guys. And as I got, went to all these different clubs, I got to know some of these comedians on the, who were in the beginning of the, the circuit as far for them. And I still am in touch with some of these guys. And that was about 10 years ago. And now some of them are starting to do really well. And they're not famous by any means, but they're starting to earn some money from it now. But they're, they're working so hard in, in what they do. So when you, when you were traveling the world, as a, a white English guy, 
how did people take you? How did people find you? Have you got a, a different view of culture, of race, and maybe inclusion or discrimination than somebody who maybe hasn't maybe experienced that part of the world? Well, yeah, and it's interesting you say as a as a as a white English guy because I'm not actually a white English guy. Although that's how I look. Um, I'm actually mixed race. My my father is black. Um, my mother is blonde Irish, and but she must have strong genes because I don't have any. Well, I say I don't have any. Most people who look at me uh, believe that I'm just white English because I'm. I've got a very. I've got a slightly olive olive skin. But my facial features are, are very kind of European. But as I said, my, my father is the same shade as um, Usain Bolt. You know, he's, he's very dark. Um, and so it's been it's interesting for me as, as I've grown up and as I've traveled and I've gone to all these different places. And I know that everyone who looks at me looks at me as a, a white English person. But I haven't necessarily grown up like that because I've grown up. It's, it's, sometimes it's been a bit strange when I was growing up because... I was very aware that I am mixed race and, and and who my father is and so on. But, and there was even times when I'd be in a situation with a crowd of guys, maybe some like a football crowd sort of thing. And, and there was some quite racist of remarks being made, not to me, just being made because they just presumed that I was the same as the rest of them. That I, I was a white English guy. And so in some ways it's allowed me to see a different side of racism because I see guys who would never be racist in front of someone who was from another race. But when they're with just other white people, they're extremely racist and believing that I was just the same as them. And so it's allowed me sometimes to see people for who they really are rather than who they pretend to be when they're in front of someone who is a different race, um, which is in some ways is good because it's allowed me to there's some people I know who who don't who have no idea that I'm mixed race and who I know are actually very racist uh, inside, but they never show that face when they're in front of black or Asian or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I obviously, I read the show notes that you sent through, so I was aware about your father when I asked the question. So I, I didn't want to sort of, I wanted you to tell your own story there. But it is interesting that you you make assumptions about about people around you. This tip of the iceberg, the, these these stereotypes we create. We look at someone, we form these judgments very quickly. And we, how often do we get to know the true person, you know, who their family is, who their friends are, who what interests them, what, what their loves and hates are? And I I talk about this when I do my LGBTQ plus training all the time. We we don't we can't assume someone's sexuality. We can't assume who they someone's married to, but yet we do. We make an assumption that I, I know I've got many gay friends. Or, or it's always presumed that they're married to a woman. Or if if it becomes if, if they say they're married to a man, and then they talk about their children, so they get puzzled. Like, how can you have children if you're if you're a man married to a man? And again, you have to do all this explaining and often it's easier just to pass or cover or blend and not have those conversations. Just just be a, a passing straight white person, if you like, without having to explain all these details about you. But many people don't have that luxury if they're not a passing, if they're black, they're, they're openly gay and they're happy to be openly gay. They wear that with pride. And you know, I'm, I can't not be trans. It's kind of obvious to most people. I don't. I don't make a secret of it. But I can't pack myself away in a box for someone else's convenience. And the amount of times, you know, like yourself, I've been involved with conversations prior, maybe to my transition, that were sexist, that were racist, that were whatever all the things you described, transphobic, and it was eating me up inside. It really was a struggle to hold that in. And of course, if I'd snapped. And says something, people look at me like I'm. What's it to you? Why does it matter? It's, and then you have to kind of almost, you just say because it does. It's not enough. Sometimes it, you have to almost like it, it matters because, and then you almost feel obliged to sort of tell your story, which you don't really want to be put in that position. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. I. 
I struggled with it as a kid because I didn't, my mother and my father divorced or they split when I was very young. So I didn't grow up with my father. I grew up with the person who I call my dad is, is a white guy. He's, you know, he's really my stepdad. So I grew up in a very white environment, but always aware that I wasn't completely white, even though I looked completely white. And the school I went to was probably about 50% black. It was, a, you know, it was quite a black area of London. Um, but I always, I, it, was, it was difficult because I didn't feel, I'm African black, so my father is African. Most of my school was West Indian black. And in the 70s, yeah, I'm, um, when I was going to school, it was very cool to be West Indian black. It was not cool to be African black. African blacks were really kind of ridicule, ridiculed and you know, a lot of fun made out. And so I would never let anyone know that I was actually born in Africa and that my father was African because I knew that I would be in for a whole load of you know, people making fun of me and so on. And so I, I was, it was always, um, and I, I couldn't just come out and say, oh, I, I'm, my dad's black because I didn't look black. And so I kind of felt not uncomfortable, but it was just, it was, yeah, it was kind of strange for me growing up. I wasn't, I was never sure. I just, most people just assumed I was white and I never said anything different to most people. I, I was born in Singapore. Back in the mid sixties, my father was a naval artificer. My mum, I suppose, a, a professional mother at the time, as, she, as women were in the sixties. So I was born in Singapore in a, in a in a naval hospital in Singapore to two white middle class English heritage people. But when I got to a certain age where I was applying for jobs, CVs, resumes, passports, whatever. There's always a, a, there's always a nationality and a place of birth that came up. And I always put Singapore, and I always put in brackets afterwards, British Naval Hospital, close brackets. Because I was, I was really, I don't know, I, I was just keen to say, I am English, really. It was almost like I was I, yeah, I worried that I would be perceived as someone who wasn't British English by saying I was born in Singapore. And I, I look back on that now, and I would never explain that again. I never put that. I never put that footnote anymore. I just say Singapore. But there must have been some bias in my own head, some prejudice in my own head about being perceived as as not mm. completely white. And I still remember that. I, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not shameful about that feeling, I, but I, I'm very conscious that I felt that way. And I've challenged myself on it since. Mm. Um, because I was conscious mm. that other people may be biased against me if I put the Singapore down. So it's very interesting that you, you say you, mm. you kind of pass as a, as a white person, but you're still proud of your, your African mm. heritage where you were born. Hmm. Yeah, and what you just said is so true. I spent mo the, certainly the first half of my life, or certainly until my twenties, playing up or really living up to being British and English, and told very few people where I was born, or they, you know, they didn't know anything about my father. And I probably really exaggerated my a Cockney accent to 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 fit in, and 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 so on. And I didn't want anyone to feel you want to fit in. You want to be like everyone else. And I, it's only in the last, I think, 10, 15 years, I've become much more comfortable with who I actually am and where I'm from and my, you know, my family on my father's side as well. Do you keep in contact with them? Do you, do you see them? I, I never actually met my father until I was in my mid-20s. And then I met him, and at the time I was, well, I was working in Switzerland. And I didn't meet his family because he'd married again to a, so he's from Sudan. I was born in, born in Sudan and he married a Sudanese woman and moved to Tottenham in North London. I didn't know that when I was growing up. And it was when I came back to live in England and I met his four children. So my half brothers and sisters, and I got quite a close relationship with two, the two oldest girls. Um, but I didn't have such a close relationship with him. He was very deeply religious and I'm not religious at all. And I found it quite difficult to, he would pray five times a day. And it just wasn't, yeah. And and because we hadn't, I hadn't grown up with him. I didn't know anything about him as I was growing up. 
it was always a difficult relationship, but it was much easier with his with his children. Mm. Yeah, I suppose you, if you have no contact with a, an estranged father, it's a really difficult relationship to rebuild, isn't it? Whereas maybe your siblings, it, it's it's a far easier, maybe relatable peer to peer type type level, isn't it? I think. I've, I mean, I haven't had a great relationship well, and it was with my funny father in some way for many years. Oh, sorry, carry on. Well, yeah, and sorry for... Right, yeah, there was a slight delay, so I didn't hear you carry on. But yeah, it was funny in some ways because they were... Um, both their mother and father were Sudanese, and so they, my, my siblings look black, but they were born in London, whereas I look white and I was born in Sudan. So it was, it was some strange sort of... Um, parallel as well as opposites in some ways between us mm. i've got some friends who uh fostered uh to white families which was quite apparently quite common in the 60s and, and early part of the 70s where black children were taken from their black parents for various reasons poverty or other reasons and, and they were they were homed or fostered or adopted by white families and that that led them to a huge identity crisis black raised by white people uh understanding that culture and i, I mean they, i think all of the people I, I know that have told me this have, have felt very confused about their identity and had a lot of conflict around that racism um and find, trying to find out who they truly are it must, must be really kind of i don't know I, I i can't even think of how that makes you feel Well, and there's also, and I don't know, I mean, obviously I can't speak for the situations you're talking about, but I know for myself, growing up in London in in the 70s and 80s, it was quite, especially from the police, there was quite a racist um, atmosphere. And a lot of my friends were being picked up regularly by the police on the, the sus laws at the time. And And I was never arrested by the police. And I was wearing the same clothes as these guys and I was doing the same things and in the same, you know, but I was never, ever just stopped for, for sus. Whereas all my friends were always, always being stopped for sus. And so it became, I almost in some ways kind of felt guilty. I thought, well, I am actually half black. And if the, if these police officers had known that, I probably would have been stopped more often, but I was never, literally never stopped. And yet they were all, my friends were always being stopped. Yeah, that must be really, really kind of, I don't know, in one way you feel lucky, but in another way you feel disappointed for your friends because you could see that overt racism at play. Yeah, there was a feeling of guilt in some sometimes because I was... I'm, I realized I was really, really lucky that I was not being subjected to what my friends were being subjected to. Um, and that was just purely by the luck of not having a darker complexion. I mean, my best friend was also mixed race and he was a saint. His father was black and his mum was white, but he looked very um, black. You know, his hair was more sort of Afro and so on, whereas, you know, my hair's not. And, and we were subjected to such different experiences. And yet we were basically the same in some ways, you know. I, I'm, I'm kind of lost for words because that situation for me, I've got no reference point of that, that conflict of identity or that conflict of, of history in my life. So it's hear your story and hear the story of other people I've, I've spoken to. It, yeah, it's, it really takes me into a different position of thinking you know, about how that can happen and, and how it does uncover racism. It uncovers our, the social constructs and the, the systemic problems we have in society in some cases it, with, the, with the police, with the stop and search, with the discrimination in employment, in, in benefits, aggravated by things like Grenfell, Windrush, and now uh, what appears to be a, a racial bias to death, to dying as a result of COVID, often due to how people live, the societies and the communities they grow up with, multiple generations in, in families living in the same property. Um, there's a whole load of, sort of structural reasons why black, brown 
or non-white people are disproportionately affected by COVID. And it's not about vitamin D and it's not about the color of the skin. It's about the societal constructs that we've created around those communities. And it's, as a white person, I'm really shielded from that. And I'm spending a lot of time educating myself on, on, on creating, making sure I understand what's going on in society and, yeah, it, it it is, and uh, for you to be in that kind of halfway house where you you pass as white but have that black heritage, it's yeah, it must be quite a, a conflict. But I'm not saying a bad conflict, but a something that you have to work with in your life. Yeah, and I yeah, it was. I guess it was more, I just felt because my friends were suffering quite badly and, you know, being beaten up and, and suffering and sometimes. And so I just, I was very aware of how, how lucky I was. Um, but, but, but there was an element of guilt about that. I mean, one of the, I, when I, when I do my training, I do my talking, I talk about how a lot of biases come from media. And I noticed in, in, in part of your bio, you say you, you don't own a television and you haven't read a newspaper in decades. So a lot of the biases that are prevalent in today's society are really fed by the media. Do you feel shielded from them or do you feel cut off or how do, how do you, how do you keep in touch with society? Um, I don't feel the need to, um, I feel, and I've, I, I have very little stress in my life and I believe that's one of the reasons is because I don't feel that I have to keep in touch with everything that's going on and be have to know what's happened yesterday in Westminster or what the Daily Mail have made up or, or whatever the case may be. Um, I I mean, I, I'm, I'm very aware of what's going on. If Well, just from being on social media, from using things like Facebook and, and whatever platforms, if there, I see a lot of people talking about a particular story, depending on the context and the sort of things they're saying, then I'm, it may lead me to go and discover more about what that story is. So I may look at certain websites to find out more about that story. But half the time, I can see from the different um, comments that are being made by lots of different people that I know who are white, black, Asian, and, and whatever. Sometimes I feel, well, actually, I don't want to know anything about that story because it's clearly, I can see it's not actually helping people by the views that they're expressing. So I'm quite content not knowing anything about that story. Do you self-select and research as, as you feel you want to and is necessary at the time? Okay. Yeah. I think we are sucked yeah. into this. I need to be fed with information on our phones, on the news, our media. We kind of get addicted to it. It must be. I was say quite cathartic, and as you say, very relaxing. Not to have this this pressure of of media intrusion into your life mm. all the time. Well, and and the reason it came about was because when I was living abroad for a long time, and I came back to England for a friend's wedding in '96, so I'd been away about ten years at that point, and. I had been reading a, a, I've been getting a weekly paper called the International Express, which was like a, the last seven days main stories from the Daily Express. And I'd been receiving this for a, a few years. And that was the only touch point I had with England because this was, you know, pre internet and so on. And I didn't realize, but I was believing all these sensational stories in, you know, that they have in the Daily Express on a regular basis. And when I came back to England, I was, there was a couple of times where I was with different groups of friends and we would be, we would be going to a different places. And I was saying, oh, we, we, surely we don't want to go there. It's really dangerous there. And my friends were sort of looking at me, well, what are you talking about? And this happened on a few different occasions. And I realized as I was on a plane going back to Indonesia, it occurred to me that my whole um, thoughts about England had been completely shaped about how England was by by the Daily Express over the previous few years because I hadn't actually seen England. I'd only been, all I knew about England now was what I was reading in the Daily Express. And that was why I was being so fearful about going to places like Ealing and, and Islington and other places, which 
I would never have had second thought about going to when I was growing up. But now I was suddenly fearful about going to these places because I'd been kind of conditioned in that way by reading the Express every day. And on the on the plane going back, I thought, well, I'm not buying that paper anymore. And that slowly turned into, I just have never bought a newspaper since. I'm honest, I don't think the only time I've bought a newspaper in the last 10 years is when I was in it. <laughs> I wanted to check the article I wrote or the story about me. But no, I, I, don't, I don't buy newspapers, but I, I do click on links on social media and I probably consume a bit online. Um, BBC News, that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, I, I don't think I've bought a newspaper or read a newspaper for many, many years either. So, no. But you're so right about how we form these biases and prejudices and based on somebody else's commentary. And I've never been to China myself, but I'm I'm hearing all this about the Uyghur population and the way the, the Chinese culture. I've never been to some most of Africa. and My whole life is view of Africa is clouded by what I see on the television. I've never been to many parts of the Middle East. So how I perceive the Middle East, the people from that territory and region, again, all clouded by the media. And I'm always very conscious about my biases about, because we often see lots of stories where there's a war or conflict or poverty or, or something we disagree with going on in that region. That's all we ever hear. And we don't really get to, to experience the people. And I was watching something the other day. I can't remember which country it was. They just had a major earthquake or they just had a major disaster. And they were interviewing these people. But the people they were interviewing were covered in mud and rubble because they just had their, they'd had their lives blown away by what a disaster had happened. And I thought it's already made them seem more primitive less capable, less intelligent. My biases were building up big time. I thought, no, these people have jobs, they have families, they have a bank account, they have money, they drive a car, they they have a position in society that, is, that delivers a service to other people. But all we're being shown is this poor, broken family, not who they – I want to know who they were all about them so I can feel a true impression of, of, of the context. Uh, and that's all, all we see. We, we only see the disaster view of these people, which dehumanizes in a way and just reduces them to a, a hard luck story. Whereas, yeah. And there's also the agenda that the the channels have. So, I mean, I can, there's one particular story I have where, again, while I was in, 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 in Indonesia, in Jakarta, and there was a riot happening in North Jakarta, in, in Kota, a place in Chinatown. And I was at the time living in South Jakarta and Jakarta is a huge place. It's not as big as London, but it's not far off. And so if you can imagine if you're in, say, somewhere like Wandsworth and there's a riot happening in Tottenham, well, you're not affected at all because it's so far away. Well, so we, I was sharing, I was at a friend's house at the time, another English guy, and we happened to have just walked down the road to the local pizza place and we bought a pizza and we're back in his house and we're eating the pizza and we're watching CNN who were reporting on this riot in Jakarta. And the reporter said, all the expats are barricaded in their houses because the thing, things are so bad. And we've looked at each other. And we've just walked down the road to get a pizza. What are you talking about? The expats are barricaded. But everyone who was outside of Indonesia and couldn't see what the situation was would obviously believe what this reporter was telling them. And that, again, that, and that wasn't long after that story with the whole newspaper thing as well. And I, I just started realizing these newspapers and media, have, they've got this agenda which they want to make people believe. And if you're not a, there to see that actually that's not the situation, then you're going to believe that. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think if you like, from a DNI of this podcast, you know, into business, and that's a real perspective that we want to maybe leave people with that question what you're being fed by the media, question their motives and seek out your own truth. A bit like you're saying, you do the, you do the selective research, targeted research to get uncover the real story. I think that's really, really important. And as a, as a takeaway, that maybe that's the nugget I'd like to leave people with here is about understanding your biases, understanding what you've been fed, understanding the perspectives you have and how to challenge those and be really active about learning about some of 
about people, about situations, cultural, emotional intelligence. That's what I always encourage people to do. Well, Tony, we've been speaking for just over an hour. I'm sure we could both carry on for another couple of hours and I look forward to meeting up with you in the real world one day. Um, so thanks, Tony. How do our listeners get in touch with you? Tell us a bit about your website, what you're doing. So I, I touched upon it, you know, I, I, with the whole habit thing. And, and as I said, the way that the habits came about is because I've been immersing myself in health for quite a few years now. Um, and I help people to improve their sleep, their nutrition, their breathing, their movement, and their mindset. And I, I call my business Habits and Health. And so there's the ways people can f- get more information about me. My website is tonywinyard.com. Winyard is W-I-N-Y-A-R-D. Um, I've got a quiz. You can find out whether you're in control of your habits or your habits are in control of you, just which is tinywinyard.com slash habits. I've got a free five-day program, which I kind of coach people through improving their habits and how to create a habit from whatever behavior it is you want. Maybe it's to, to do press-ups on a regular basis or to floss your teeth or whatever it might be. I've got this free five-day program, which is tinywinyard.com slash habits. Um, Sorry, the quiz, I, I think I get, no, the, the quiz is habits-health.com. I think I gave the wrong URL before. I forget what it was I said. But yeah, and I, I've got, I do, I coach people in this and I also have some group online programs in this where there's usually eight to 10 people and there's a, there's that kind of hive mind where by people telling their stories about how they're having problems maybe with their sleep or or respiratory issues or whatever the case may be. And when I'm able to help that one person, I'm also helping other people in the room or, or the story that one other person is tell, is talking about is helpful to the other people in the room as well. And, and I have a podcast, Fantastic. which we touched upon. Yeah, I've got a podcast called Habits and Health. Fantastic. I'm going to go and check my habits and see, see what I've got. And I'm, I'm definitely going to build up my, my cycling habit. That's, that's one thing I've taken away from talking today. I need to break into that habit, make a positive habit out of cycling, not uh, ignoring the bike. Although I can see the bike every time I look out the kitchen window, it's staring at me saying, ride me, ride me. So I, I haven't hidden it. So it's in my thoughts. So amazing. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your contribution. been a really good to chat to you. And a huge thanks uh, to you, my listener. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for getting to the end. If you want to hear more, please do subscribe to keep updates on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast at B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends. I'm sure you have a few. Tell your colleagues. Probably got some of those as well. I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. So please, 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 um, if you'd like to, also, if you'd like to be a guest, get in contact with me. I'd love to have you on the show. And as always, I'd welcome feedback, suggestions for future shows on how I can improve to joe.lockwood at seachangehappen.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been a pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.